And so the result of that essentially is that it's super lagging. Like today the Fed would say that like, I think, I don't remember, but I think that, you know, rents are, are currently 5% and they're, so they're slowly getting down to where they should be, which is 3%. On the ground, they're negative 2.5%. I'm Mary Long, and that's Ben Miller, co-founder and CEO of Fundrise, a real estate investment platform. He's also a returning guest to Motley Fool Money. Deidre Willard checked in with Miller for a chat about what real estate data says about inflation, the boom in artificial intelligence investing, and the great lag between the Fed and the economy. We last chatted a tail end of last year and you were putting out some gloomy podcasts and forecasts about future real estate credit and this phenomenon that you called the great deleveraging. So tell us, what is the great deleveraging and what are you seeing right now? Wow. Yeah. So that thesis was that uh, zero interest rate policy for 15 years and quantitative easing led to an excess amount of debt buildup and as that debt buildup uh, came comes due in a new higher interest rate environment, people have to pay down the amount of debt they have, right? Because you used to have a 3% mortgage, instead you have a 7% mortgage, which means that if you're a company or you're uh, a commercial borrower and some individuals just can't support that, and they're going to have to pay down or sell. And, I, and that's a deleverage, reduce the amount of leverage in the system. And that is is talk, you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars of that, and so it's great a great deleveraging as a result of higher interest rates hitting the economy. Yeah, one of the things I remember you saying was uh, turtle turtles all the way down. So this idea that the debt would keep we keep going and going and going and and you know borrower after borrower and lender after lender. Yeah. Yeah, people don't realize this, but the biggest borrower in the market is the lender. Uh, the banks, maybe they do now because you started seeing Silicon Valley Bank and other banks um, blow up. But there's um, the, there's actually like very few people who or, or companies that don't leverage their credit. They they make a loan, a bank makes a loan, and then they borrow against it. And so there's a lot more debt in the system than might be apparent. And typically that debt or debt in general makes you fragile. And so that fragility is the risk. And so far we've seen some breakage, but, but we've not seen a collapse. And, um, even a month ago, people would have, I think would have said that like, no, there's gonna be soft landing. This great deleveraging thing was way off base. But I, I, I think we're starting to see a turn even like just recently in that maybe all of this, uh, leverage combined with high interest rates, are um, actually going to hit the economy um, harder than what was consensus in the in the summer. So yeah, it's interesting because of what happened with with the banks. So uh, you know, you you were talking about the great deleveraging before that. Then we had Silicon Valley and some others. Uh, I know Signature Bank is uh, there's the need to sell off those loans. What are you looking at in terms of the commercial real estate loans that are that are coming due and and being sold off by by banks? Yeah, I mean, this is a great time to be a lender because the banks have stopped lending. So yeah. there's a supply-demand mismatch. And where you, you make great investments when there's uh, a mismatch between the market 
the markets. Either you you can sell when there's a lot of demand, there's not enough uh, supply, or you can buy when there's a lot of supply, not enough demand. And so right now, it's an incredible time to be a lender because everybody's being forced to borrow more or because uh, of the great deleveraging. And there's and the normal lenders out of the market. I mean, banks virtually out of the market. And so there's, you're stuck. I mean, we're, we're making loans of, uh, you know, 12, 15%, 12 to 15% interest rates where would have been half that, you know, one, one year ago. So it's, it's, that's definitely something we're, we're focused. I mean, it's, it's a, a problem for some parts of the market and a, a problem is an opportunity. Yeah, that's th- th- those are some spicy rates there, and you're absolutely right. You you would not have have gotten those before. I know you uh, you now have a closed end fund for opportunistic credit investing. So obviously, I understand why why now to do this. So are you amassing money to then uh, invest in different things? Yeah, I mean, there's I think the part that where where there's still a disconnect is is there's been a big lag. Uh, and uh, somebody started saying you should call it the great lag because you have great <laughs> leveraging. <laughs> but um, the the lag between when monetary policy gets tight or when interest rates go up and when they're actually uh, the impact seen in the economy is much longer than people intuitively expect. Yeah. And so, and it's funny. I was just reading, not to get too nerdy here, but I was just reading a paper in 1961 by Milton Friedman where he wrote the famous line that he said, empirically, monetary policy has long and variable lags. So long and variable lags is sort of this famous quote among economists. And that's 1961. And so and he says typically two years from when they raise rates to when you, when you see the impact in the economy. So they started raising rates summer of uh, last year, started in April, really got, um, really got going by summer of last year. And so we have, you know, we're still nine months away from really seeing the impact on the economy. And already, you know, you could argue that inflation has come down a ton. And so we're, we're, we sort of, it's like uh, there's a, uh, this happens a lot in like uh, rivers, right, where there'll be a, a flood upriver. It takes a long time for it to come downriver and finally wash out the town. And, but that's like definitely, in my view, definitely going to happen, um, I mean, I guess I guess it's not definite. There's a possibility that Fred reverses itself, but I think it's highly unlikely. So that uh, preparation for the flood, whether it's a defensive or offensive opportunity, is I think the big thing happening in real estate markets. So what you're saying is you you don't feel like the soft landing is happening. You feel like the Fed's impact is has not been felt yet. And so does that? Do you think that there's a possibility that? that the Fed actually has to backtrack or do you think that they are going to sort of stick there? Because I don't think there's any way that we might really going to get to that 2% inflation rate anytime soon. I don't, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, there's like, there's a few different factors in there. There's sort of pure economic questions and then there's like institutional psychological questions. Mm -hmm. You know, what will the Fed do? So let's just give an example. In 2021, inflation came, appeared roaring. And it was May 2021. We, you know, we own Fundrise has something like uh, 20,000 apartments, and we saw, you know, like a switch went off in May 2021, and our rents increased over that period 20, 30 percent. You know, and that never happened before. Normally, rents increase three percent. Yeah. So, so May it hit. Okay. It was obvious 
that inflation has just gone rampant. The Fed did not raise rates until March 2022, a year later. And then they really didn't get going until May. So it took them one year from when they, you know, you could see it. I mean, it wasn't like inflation is coming. Inflation was like already here. It was very high. And they didn't raise rates for a year until after that it happened. So I, I expect, and this is the, this is a more of a, this is not a mathematical uh, projection, like, like the way monetary policy lags, that the Fed will be slow because of sort of institutional bias. And there's a great quote. I don't know if you know this quote. It's uh, the Fed talks like a trader, but acts like, but acts like an accountant. Mm. So they're forward looking in what they say, but they're backwards looking in what they do. Right. And so like, and I, I, I another, another thing I see is that like, um, so multifamily construction today, if you're going to borrow multifamily construction debt and go to a bank you're going to pay eight and a half, probably 9%, 9% if you go borrow. And you have 50% leverage, 55% leverage, 9% interest rate. And 18 months ago, that was 70% leverage at 3% interest rate. Okay, so there's a and, – and you pretty much can't get bank lending. It's really difficult, like a normal bank lending. So you're talking about that's a quadrupling of multifamily – uh, construction interest rate costs. And that had happened, and that was obvious to me, you know, and the team here, and anybody in the business, almost a year ago. Almost a year ago, you could be on the ground and see that multifamily was construction was basically going grind to a halt. And we were we started doing lending, MES lending and bridge lending and and you know gap lending, emergency rescue funding lending into that space starting about a year ago. I think, I think we closed the first one in October. I think it was October. So, and, and the, it only showed up in the data, like the Fed data, the Fed, the Fred, which is the um, Federal Reserve, St. Louis has, yeah. a, has a great source of data. And it only really showed up in their data um, this summer, right? So it fell off a cliff in the data really in Oct- August, September, and so you're like, there's just this massive lag just in the data. And then there's a lag in the reaction to the data. And so there's just a, there's just a lot in the system that basically likely we're going to stay too high for too long, just like we stayed too low for too long. Right. And, and the consequences of that are likely to be painful. So in terms of rent, you mentioned that the, you know, what we saw in 2021 with multifamily rents going higher, they've been getting lower and lower with multifamily, with these, uh, you know, developers taking on more cost, do they then have the ability to, to raise rents enough or are they, they're, are they kind of stuck? No, no. Rents nationally are, have gone negative. So this is another example. So rents today, this is how the Fed does, um, uh, housing inflation it's a i don't know how much you know about this it's sort of like an obscure piece of knowledge but basically they used to have um housing inflation based on housing price and and um that went crazy in the 70s and so reagan under reagan they changed how they calculated inflation they called it owner owner occupied equivalency so it's this like strange formula that basically <laughs> it doesn't look at asset prices. 
And so the result of that essentially is that it's super lagging. Like today the Fed would say that like, I think, I have the number, but I think that, you know, rents are, are currently 5% and they're, so they're slowly getting down to where they should be, which is 3%. On the ground, they're negative 2.5%. And I think they go more negative. And, and as they go more negative, like that's going to hurt the, the over-levered borrower. But also, like, you know, I think housing is 30% of, of inflation and you have literally at a negative 2.5% today, right, on a, on a year-over-year basis. And over a week-over-week basis, it's down 0.1. So it's equivalent to negative 5% on an annualized basis. So it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's about like it's a, the, con, the economy is like a freight train, like a giant 350 million person freight train. So it, once it gets going one way or the other, it's hard to turn it. And so it was, it was going like a freight train up and now it's going like a freight train down. And as in 2021 was so crazy, right? The pricing got so crazy in the stock market, meme stocks, SPACs and NFTs. And so that those high highs can also happen on the low lows. And I think people are not prepared for that type of um, problem that I, I think is basically a natural consequence of the high, the high highs. It's like winter follows summer in a, in a very natural way. Well, it's it's interesting, though, because you've got the situation with jobs uh, staying relatively steady. And so that's keeping things up. And, you know, so consumers are still spending. We're starting to see a little bit of weakness in terms of like credit card delinquencies and things like that. But so far, the the, the sort of the consumer sentiment is that we're still OK. And I think that that contributes as well. And maybe people aren't yeah, seeing yeah. it. Well, so like if you look at the history, which is, is that the Jobs is a lagging indicator. Right. So people say, look at jobs. They're like, well, jobs lag. So what are leading indicators? And, and so, so typically, and I, and I you go back to 2007 or, or 1999, or before I went back and pulled quotes from like before every recession and like right before every recession, jobs, unemployment was super low. Unemployment in 2007 was historic lows. In, in 1999, here was historic lows. And everybody was saying, look, job, job, job growth is so strong. And then it falls off a cliff and it, and it typically moves on average across every recession in U.S. history. It's moved 3.3% in 18 months. So that would take us, that would, be, that would put 5 million people out of work in 18 months. If it, if, and it would happen, it would basically start hitting most acutely in the spring of 2024, late spring of 2024. That's what the historic average is, because there's a lag. Because companies on the ground, and I, I see it, right, they're not going to build apartments. Um, you're not going to, you know, manufacturing and industrial is, like, slowed down because they're worried about, you know, uh, they get the cost of borrowing to actually build anything. So I, 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 I've, been, I've been consistent on this, and people call me bear. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bull on AI, and I'm going to talk about AI, and I think there's... And I, and I, I'm not, I think everything will turn, will turn back up again, like as a cycling and it goes up and then it goes back down and then it goes back up again. And, and, and so I'm not, I, I think it will go up again. 2025 is going to be, a, you know, we'll, we'll get back on track, but like, this is how it works. But this, 
One of the things that is different this time, though, is uh, at least for homeowners, they have so much more equity in their homes. I mean, nobody's moving right now. The whole market's at a at a standstill. But people do have equity. There is something, hopefully, to to be able to to tap into. Yeah, I totally agree. And before 2008, there was a saying, it was safe as houses. Because mm. before 2008, across over 100 years, houses have never gone down. So people are looking at 2008 and say, oh, housing, but like housing is going to be, looks like housing is going to be fine. Yeah, housing is almost always fine. 2008 was an exception. So I think housing and households actually will be um, okay. Like, you know, I don't think it's actually a source of the risk. I th- most people have locked in long-term interest rates and, and uh, they have home equity and they aren't on arms and things like that. So I think this more in the corporate sector, it's, 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 um, the problems aren't, I think, going to come from housing. I think housing should be fine. Yeah. Like it's not, you know, maybe, maybe it goes down a little bit, but it's, it's not a source. I don't think it's a source of risk. I think it's, it's really all the, all of the, um, I mean, I just, the companies that have, like private equity and and some some real estate. I mean, there's lots of business borrowers out there who have debt that will come due, and 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 they won't be able to service it. And or any business. I mean, the, the business ex, the ability for businesses to expand in this environment is really difficult, except for AI, which I still want to talk about. Yeah, we will. <laughs> and <laughs> so that's an opportunity. I'm not saying it's a it's it's a problem. For I think it's an opportunity. If for people who are prepared and, and that's like, that's a problem is always an opportunity. It's just, you have to, you have to reframe it. It, it, but denying that there'll be a problem is usually a bad approach. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the other things you're investing in. Cause you've got the innovation fund, uh, you know, the, one of the things we talk about all the time is like the IPO market is, is slow. Companies are, are looking for funding anywhere they can get it. You've been investing in a variety of different companies. I noticed that you embedded in, invested in Canva, which is uh, you know the content creation platform. Everybody seems to love Canva. How are you thinking about uh, the opportunities right now? Are you seeing a lot of companies looking for money? Are they feeling that pressure? Well, so AI is a is a big deal, and and I think it's even unclear to people what AI even means. Because I it's. But it's this, there's like, there's like wheels within wheels here. So the generally venture capital is, is I think the best performing asset class in a U.S. history, right? Venture, like, you know, private tech companies. And historically, individuals have no access to it. It's, just, it's, it's not an area you can invest in, both regulatorily and also sort of structural to the market. So our mission has always been to democratize um, good investments. And so we've been chasing that for a while. And then we were sort of we were lucky because right when we launched the fund, there was a generational breakthrough, and AI is a generational breakthrough. It's as you know, it's bigger than. I mean, is it bigger than the internet? I think probably ends up being bigger than the internet. Definitely bigger than a personal computer. I mean, it's it's so fundamental that it, that it's hard to actually. It's hard to actually get your your mind around, and we can talk. But there's patterns to it, and it's and it and essentially it's really exciting. And there's going to be a lot of like money and growth and excitement. And most people won't be able to participate because it's happening in the private markets. There's like 10 companies in the public markets that are, you know, leveraging AI and NVIDIA is like one of them. Right. And you can buy NVIDIA at like 
1,000 times revenue, whatever it is. But like most of the stuff's happening with startups and you're just, you can't, individuals couldn't invest in that until we sort of created a new way. And that's like, that's what's so exciting. I mean, that we, we've basically like kind of broke the, the oligarchy, like, uh, you know, hammer lock on it or something. But it's a little bit different than investing in, in real estate because your, your, your end is different. You're looking, you're looking either for the company to be acquired or, or to have an IPO. So, so, the, so the exit is a little bit less clear. So how are you thinking about that and how, how you sort of prepare investors to understand the ways that this is different? Yeah, yeah. Well, so it's different because it's fundamental. That's one thing, right? Because what's happening with AI or in some of this technology is fundamental it's a, it's generational. It doesn't have anything to do with interest rates or inflation or anything like that. And fundamental things move, like they don't, they don't care what you want, right? <laughs> when you, when you want to exit and what, how exactly it works. Like people mostly want to orient investments to what they want to have happen. But like, you know, if, if you're inventing the future, like what's happening with open AI, like you need to give them what they need, right? That, and that's, that's how you get great value. So, but in some ways it's similar to real estate. So the companies we've invested in so far, um, or the majority, vast majority of the dollars have, have been later stage companies that are still private that I think of is like, you know, like Databricks. We invested in Databricks. We invested in Canva. Both those companies, I think, have decade decade plus two decades of growth ahead of them there it's there i mean databricks is like i think like the next generation fang like it'll be well known as like the guts of ai but nobody knows about it now who's not like deep in tech but it it's it's like the inner workings of the data and technology revolution happening with ai and so it has such a long horizon on it that is a little bit like real estate and that even if it goes public doesn't mean you're a seller. Like selling Google after they went public would have been insane. So with Databricks, uh, they just had a Series I at $500 million. That gives them this massive $42 billion valuation. So they're lo- they've you know, they've been talking about IPOing for a while. So your plan there is is to hold on after after the IPO. And is that something that uh, that you're seeing for a lot of companies? Is that part of the innovation fund is that you'll hold for longer? Yeah, I think it, that, I mean, the, the fund is mostly private, but we do hold and expect to hold some publics mm-hmm. and that you, that you, um, I mean, the, the essence is you should be agnostic about public or private. The problem is that private, you are blocked from investing for most people because it's a regulatory barrier. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about being a private investor is you get a lot more information. Like, it's funny, people talk about public companies and transparency, but you actually, the, like, like a, the K's and Q's of public companies don't actually tell you that much about the business. You get a lot more information from a private company when you're investing in them, a lot more information. So you actually have a lot better understanding of their business. And so, um, yeah, I, 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 we, we would be a holder. Um, I mean, today, it's sort of irrelevant because today we're just buying privates. Mm-hmm. But, like, I, but when they go public, I, it's, 
which I think Databricks will, um, that just, you know, that, that, that doesn't change our strategy. What you want to own is the best companies. And it's, and it, you know, it's, you can look back and say, oh, it's so obvious that NVIDIA was a great company. But I think you really have to have known a lot about the tech to really have known that earlier. Yeah. And I think that's true with Databricks and, and like DBT, we invested in a company called DBT Labs. DBT is like the fastest growing data and AI software, I think, in the world. Most people never heard of it. And we invested in it, and and that's incredible. We're, we're, it was amazing, and um, and you know, you just let the compounding power of their technology just drive growth. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.